Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment... Clayton County Public Schools Superintendent Dr. Morrissey Beasley joins me. School starts next Monday. We'll hear the district's operational plan. Also, first profiled here on Closer Look, we catch up with Letitia Springer of Free Fridge 99 and the community fridge effort she spearheaded last year to provide fruits and vegetables free to anyone who wants them. Plus, Atlanta-based author Vanessa Riley drops by to talk about her latest historical fiction story based on the life of Dorothy Kerwin Thomas, once enslaved, she became one of the Caribbean's wealthiest entrepreneurs. All those conversations are coming up next. But first this, some breaking news this hour. Savannah becomes the first city in Georgia to reinstate a mask mandate. Mayor Van Johnson, who's been on this program a few times, made the announcement that, yes, indeed, he's reinstating a mask mandate in the city. The reason, Mayor Johnson said, was due to an increase in COVID-19 cases in the area and the Delta variant. And in related news, there's a report from the Associated Press and the Nork Center for Public Affairs Research, which reveals 80 percent of American adults who have not received a COVID-19 vaccine say they probably will not or definitely will not get vaccinated. The poll also found 64 percent of unvaccinated Americans are not confident in the safety the shots provide against the coronavirus variants. Still, as he's been doing for some time now, Dr. Anthony Fauci, chief medical advisor to President Joe Biden, this past weekend on MSNBC, stressed the importance, again, of getting vaccinated. So you're going to have suffering on the part of the people who are unvaccinated. There will be some, not very many, we hope, but there will be some breakthrough infections, even among the vaccinated. So as long as you have circulating virus in the community, which is predominantly because people are not getting vaccinated, then they hurt themselves. And you don't want to see that. Now here in Georgia, there have been more than 1,100 new coronavirus cases within the last two weeks right here in the state. So, yes, all city of Atlanta pools and other news are closed indefinitely for operational assessment. The city's Department of Parks and Recreation made the announcement yesterday afternoon. Now, this comes one day after a 17-year-old was shot and killed following an argument at Anderson Pool. The department did not mention the shooting in their announcement, but the statement says, quote, out of an abundance of caution for our residents and staff, it remains necessary to keep the pools closed until further notice. We have reached out to the mayor's office for a little bit more information. We will get you. We will tell you that when we get it. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms did waive admission fees to all city of Atlanta pools earlier this summer. In other news, Georgia lawmakers are set to wrap up public hearings 
concerning the plan to redraw the state's voting districts. Now, politicians have been holding town halls across the state to hear residents' concerns about the process, and we've been bringing you some of those public comments, and we'll continue to do that. Now, maps haven't been produced yet because of COVID and interference from the Trump administration. Back then, the census data needed has been delayed. That's set to change, though, in just a matter of weeks. The Census Bureau will release redistricting data by mid-August, so they say. Advocates say the public hearings are premature and would rather have a chance to comment once the maps are actually produced. Hearings this week will take place in Brunswick, Macon, and Albany. A virtual event is scheduled for July 30th. Lawmakers have not set a time on when the special session will happen later this year to vote on the maps. And finally... Seven, Leatherland making a run here. Leatherland looks like he's in second right now. Kalish is going to win gold for the United States. And Leatherland is trying to make it a 1-2 finish for the Americans. It's going to be close for the silver. Kalish wins gold. Leatherland gets the silver. The University of Georgia swimming program is on international display over in Tokyo for the Olympics. Five UGA alum earned medals in their events this past weekend. As you heard, Chase Kalish and Jay Litherland won the first two medals in the 400-meter individual medal. And Kalish becomes the first Georgia men swimmer to earn an individual gold medal. Now, you've all been wondering, Emory alum Andrew Wilson, who we spoke to some time ago, the first swimmer ever to compete in NCAA Division III and make the U.S. Olympic team. He competed in the 100-meter breaststroke in the finals earlier today. I'm not going to tell you the outcome because I don't want to spoil it and have you all send me crazy emails. You'll just have to watch. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. For many school districts, summer break is coming to an end, and students are gearing up to return for the 21-22 school year. Mandated mask wearing or not, each district will implement their own guidelines. Today we launched a series of conversations talking with several area school superintendents about their back-to-school plans. And we start the series with Clayton County Public School Superintendent Dr. Morrissey Beasley. He's been on this program before. I think this means he should get a T-shirt or a mug by now. Dr. Beasley, welcome back to the program. Now, Dr. Beasley, you do, I, you do these Facebook lives. You know, know you're supposed to unmute. I, know. I just had to unmute myself. <laughs> I just assumed that the team would unmute me. But hello, Rose. How are you? Doing all right. But let's actually begin here because the district is preparing for a mobile back to school extravaganza um, this coming Saturday. How excited are you about the school year gearing up here? Well, I, ha- I have to share that we are excited to get our kids back face to face on Monday, August 2nd. And the first day of school, the first week of school is just always an exciting time for us. 
And as you well know, after uh, having been out virtually since March of last year, mm-hmm. we're just excited to say that most of our families are coming back face to face. So that alone gives us a high degree of excitement. Have you gone to some of the schools? Have you been talking to principals, educators? We're going to get into your your plan in just a moment. But what have you tried to do personally just to make sure you're hearing from the educators? Because they're going to be the ones right there, obviously, on the front line and any other staff members. All of the above. Our teachers return today, but we are, uh, of course, visiting schools, talking to educators, sharing information, uh, doing surveys, whatever we can do to to collect information, but also to allay concerns, fears, et cetera. We're just going to provide the leadership to do just that. Um, what are you this hearing? This summer, we've had, a, we've had a very engaging summer. Of course, we've had many who were working the various summer programs, but this week will be an opportunity since they have now officially returned to really get out there and hear what they have to say. What are you hearing from educators and staff? What are some of those concerns that you just talked about? Well, of course, everyone's paying attention to the, uh, the, the numbers and they, they're looking at the rise in the variant cases. Uh, I'm hearing staff you know, say that they really believe we should get vaccinated, but I also know that there are those who may have that hesitancy re- relative to the vaccine. But we're going to do our part. Everyone seems to be excited about kids coming back face to face. But of course, that excitement may be somewhat tempered mm-hmm. in light of what's happening with the uh, the variants. The district is implementing what you all are co- calling a blended instructional model for the upcoming school year. Um, before we get into that and I have you dissect that, what went into this decision? Obviously, I know you probably had to speak with your school board. I imagine you spoke with health officials as well. That is correct. Um, We are constantly in contact with our, of course, our school board, our Clayton County Board of Health, our back to school task force, others, principals. uh, And and on that task force, we have representation from teachers, et cetera, parents. Looking at the data, trying to, you know, learn from what we experienced in the past year, Mm -hmm. but also acknowledging that we've got to get kids back face to face in order for them to learn at ideal levels. We made the decision to return face to face in light of the vaccination rollout, our efforts in light of the improving situation in light of the, uh, the data that tells us Mm -hmm. these, our children are ready to come back to school. We recognize that there are some risk, uh, but we're hopeful that everyone will do their part to help us mitigate for those risks. Let's talk about this blended instructional model. Dissect it for our listeners. What does that mean? That means that, of course, most of our students will be returning face-to-face, so they'll be in the classroom with their teachers. But we do have about, I'll say about 2,000 students out of 55, I I want to say hopefully 55,000 students that will participate in the virtual learning experience or continue to participate. Mm -hmm. So of course, in ideal situations, that may be that that child gets a teacher who will focus on virtual learning. However, we've got some parents who really, and, and, and principals and teachers who really want their kids. And so we've got some who are willing to do a combination of virtual learning and Uh, face-to-face learning. We call that the simultaneous model. So 
it will look different from school to school, classroom to classroom. We're, we're going to manage and support our principals uh, as they make these decisions. Uh, we're hopeful that the numbers for virtual will remain somewhat low. We consider them low right now, but mm -hmm. you never know what will happen in light of the, the variant situation. But just expect to see a lot of face-to-face, -face, but also some students, some families engaged in the virtual option. Superintendent Beasley, will masks be mandated for students and educators, regardless for those that are eligible in terms of the students, regardless of their vaccination status? In Clayton County, whether one is vaccinated or not vaccinated, masks are required in our facilities. So yes, Rose, masks are required in our facilities. And then we're going to do our we're going to do our part to minimize to the extent that we can the risk of transmission of the virus. And that includes staff as well. And also, what about with sports and extracurricular activities as long as they're on the school property or even if they're not? As long as they're in the buildings outside, it's a it, it's a it's a a bit more flexible. But inside the facilities, we want everyone to wear masks. That's the expectation. As it relates, I want to switch just for a moment to the sports uh, programs for a moment because this last year was a big deal. Uh, will you all require? Are you suggesting, particularly for those those varsity students and, and the athletes and the coaches, are you prefer that they be vaccinated? We prefer really prefer and encourage the families to get them vaccinated if they're eligible. However, we understand that uh, it's not required. We also understand that uh, we've got to have procedures in place to address any situations. And Rose, I should remind all that last year we had a full athletic program. Mm -hmm. While we did reduce the number of spectators in the stands and the gymnasiums, et cetera, we did have a full athletic program last year and we managed the COVID cases as they uh, occur throughout the year. And speaking of cases, if there is a, a situation where there could be one, I don't know what your number might be, two, ten, in terms of, of a case in a, that might have folks have been exposed to, are you all prepared to have to shift? What would make you shift to possibly going back to virtual? Well, we have several options, roles as we work with the Clayton County Board of Health we look at the data, uh, we'll make in decisions that may impact one individual, a group of individuals, one class, a group of classes, or an entire school. So we'll make those decisions on a case-by-case -case ba basis as we look at the data, figure out who's been impacted, we're contact tracing, of course, that helps us to notify individuals, and it also helps us to make a timely decision, again, whether it impacts one individual, a group of individuals, one classroom, a group of classrooms or an entire school. And but how much of this also too depends on your county as a whole here, Superintendent Beasley? Well, that's part of the uh, the data that informs the decision. We look at not only what happens in that particular situation, but we also have to recognize that we're in a context here. We're in a, we're looking at our countywide data. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I'm encouraging everyone to do their part relative to the vaccination and transmitting this virus, wearing masks, et cetera. We just need everyone to understand that we do have to look and we will look at all of that data as we make these critical decisions. Superintendent Beasley, have you had any feedback from parents who are saying, well, look, you know, the CDC has said vaccinated teachers, vaccinated students, 
should not, they don't have to wear a mask. And maybe they don't want their kids to wear a mask. What, what have you, what have you, have you heard that at all? Well, we, we do hear that. However, our response has been, while we appreciate everyone who has been vaccinated, we do understand that even those of us who are vaccinated potentially could become positive with the virus and transmit the virus. So again, it's just being responsible and us doing our part. Hopefully we can get those vaccination rates up and at some point declare this pandemic over. But until then, we're just going to continue to do our part and be responsible to that end. Have you talked to the the educators of the, the, the littlest group? And sometimes, look, let's be clear, the littlest students can sometimes follow directions more so than the older students. Have you had conversations with them about, you know, how to keep it, it fresh and lively? Because I know for some of the students, you know, it gets a little, got to keep this mask on all day, teacher. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a conversation that, of course, our principals and teachers will be having with, with our young people. We have some uh, videos that are out there that we believe are very helpful to our community. But Rose, as you will know, you know, growing when you have children, you tell them to brush their teeth one one time. That's not enough. You've got to <laughs> tell them several times. And so we're we're expecting that we'll have to have these conversations ongoing throughout the year. Or you can do like my dad and mom did and actually put a clock in the bathroom and says, look, when the big hand gets here, then you've done <laughs> brushing your teeth. Uh, Monday, August 2nd, that first day of school. And where will you be, Superintendent Beasley? I know I will be at several locations, Rose. Um, let's see here. Can't be oh, everywhere, my. but you got to be somewhere. I will be, I will be <laughs> visiting a few schools, and I'll just have staff get that to you. But I will be visiting schools, welcoming our students, our parents, and Honestly, enjoying watching parents visit those classrooms with masks, of course, social mm -hmm. distancing to the extent that we can. But some parents have not seen the inside of a school, especially if they are just uh, if they have children just entering mm -hmm. kindergarten or uh, pre-K or the first grade. So we're just excited. Uh, and, and we'll be excited to observe that on the first day. There is nothing like a kindergartner on the first day of school. It is a wonderful... And the parent. The parent. The, oh. Well, yeah, the parents are like, yeah, go. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to talk about another student population. Those are students with special needs and how you all... I know last year was tough. We talked to parents um, and... and having those students to be able to be in a familiar setting and also receive the face-to-face -face instruction that they need with these special educators that work with them, that I know for a lot of parents is, is a welcome. You are correct. And we're excited that, of course, you know, and I don't know if you know, you knew this, but in the fall, in the spring, excuse me, mm -hmm. we did, when we returned face-to-face, we made a special push to bring back, especially our students with special needs who were in self-contained classrooms, mm -hmm. they were able to come back on April 12th face-to-face. -face. So that gave us a little practice, but of course, now that we're opening fully face-to-face, -face, all students will have the opportunity to return face-to-face. -face. Uh, and we're excited. I believe that the teachers are ready, they're prepared. We recognize the needs that will exist. Uh, it's not any different from previous years, however, We've got some some aggravated challenges, if you will. Uh, we may have what students do you mean? who may not. Well, you may have students who may not have may not have learned as much of their content during the previous school year because mm -hmm. of the limited opportunities with mm -hmm. virtual learning. And so they're in a new grade. 
with the assumption that they learn the prior year's content, but there may be gaps that the teachers will have to address throughout the instructional process. Will you, do you know if educators, or this may be left up to each individual school, will there be a mandatory or some type of mandated assessment time period for these, for educators to see where kids are because of what you In just Clayton talked County, about? We, in Clayton County, we do assess at the beginning of the year. So yes, uh, all students will be assessed to see exactly where they are. And finally, uh, Superintendent Beasley, I think I asked you this last time in terms of your optimism, if you ever thought we would get to this point where students would be face-to-face so soon, so quickly. Uh, how are you feeling about all of this? I feel pretty good. I, 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 do, I do believe that um, we still have uh, some a way to go, if you will. We need everyone to do their part, get vaccinated. I am concerned about the pockets in our community that are, and, and, and really throughout the nation that are not vaccinated and potentially how that could impact our decisions to, or decision to uh, remain face-to-face. So again, I'm encouraging everyone to think about the collective uh, group, the collective community, the collective state, nation. Let's all get vaccinated. Let's do our part, get informed if you, if you must. But let's do our part so our students can have that face-to-face instructional experience that we believe is the best approach for them. All right. School starts Monday. Clayton County Public Schools Superintendent Dr. Morsese Beasley, thank you so much for taking the time. As always, I really appreciate it. Get some rest because it all changes after this weekend. I will. I'll try to, Rose, but you take care. And we look forward to coming back, sharing an update as to how the school year is going. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Sometimes an idea blossoms and the response can be remarkable. And of course, throughout the pandemic, we've brought you folks behind ideas meant to help others during a time when, well, there has really been a need. When we first met Letitia Springer last year, she told me what inspired to come up with Free 99 Fridge. It's an initiative with the community in mind also known as she calls it a solidarity fridge donated. These are placed outside local businesses, and they are filled with fresh fruits and vegetables to fight hunger while also preventing food waste. Let's check back in with Letitia Springer. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good to see you again via virtual. Yeah. Hey, Rose. Thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. Now, I don't want to start anything, but when we went to your website Uh-oh. and you have a new <laughs> you have a news section about all your different interviews and, you know, CBS, Fox. You know, all, we, you know, we didn't see. We we, we're hoping that maybe it was just an oversight that WABE, the, the first outlet to give you an interview that we weren't up there. Do, do you need that link? Is that what you're saying? Oh, I'm going to blame that on my web developer. Ah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when in doubt. <laughs> I didn't know that wasn't on there, though. Seriously, thank you for pointing that out. I will get that corrected. Uh, we're just saying. Oversight, yeah. oversight for sure, because this is one of my most enjoyed experiences with you always. You know what? When we spoke last year and you said, you know, this is an idea that I had. I just wanted to help. Um, and as I mentioned, sometimes an idea blossoms. This is really 
and you you weren't sure if it was going to become a full time gig for you. No. What's the update? Because it is. Well, it is more than full time now. <laughs> the update. Um, when we spoke last time, I shared that I intended to have one community fridge that I would visit every now and then. Um, we now have six refrigerators, five locations around Atlanta. Uh, the fridges are emptied every one to two hours after being filled. So it's a constant cycle of filling, <laughs> refilling and filling and refilling all day. So um, it requires a lot more work than I originally intended. And we've gotten a lot of community support that I also wasn't intending. So it's been great. Well, Letitia, you told me last year some of the feedback you received. And there was, I believe it was a gentleman who said, you know, without this, I didn't know if I, where my next meal would be coming from. We knew this pandemic, we knew it was going to amplify all some of the other issues that so many folks have in this nation, but there's still a need for this. You just mentioned that every one to two hours, it's emptied, you all go back. What does that say to you, that even more than more than a year later, we're still having the same conversation? Yeah, I think what 2020 and the pandemic and everything that happened around that did was just amplify the already existing issues and of course, you know, make it more difficult for people who were already having a difficult time. So those people that were struggling before the pandemic, you know, they hopefully made it through 2020, but they're still struggling. Mm -hmm. You know, things didn't get better for them now that we're in 2021. Let's talk about the community partnership and then the outpouring of, of folks reaching out to you. What has that been like? Oh my gosh, overwhelming. <laughs> Uh, because again, I thought this was something that I wanted. I didn't realize that there were other crazy people that also wanted to see uh, the community support the community. So um, all of our fridges, as you mentioned, were donated. So we've never bought a refrigerator at all. They've all just been used secondhand refrigerators that people donated to us. Um, all the food is donated from volunteers, people who just want to help feed. We also partner with local businesses to pick up and rescue their leftover food at the end of their shifts. And so um, it's really just the community. Volunteers check up on the fridges every day, <laughs> three times a day, um, sanitizing the high touch areas and just making sure the fridges stay presentable for our community. So it's really just everyone just chipping in to do their part to make sure this keeps going um, to help our city. And have you had certain neighborhoods or communities or residents or folks with MPU say, hey, we could really use a refrigerator over here? And, and is there plans you want to expand that now? Uh, we definitely have had a lot of requests for additional refrigerators, but my position remains that we need more community support around our existing refrigerators because I think it doesn't make sense to have a lot of refrigerators all over the city if they're empty. Mm -hmm. We're having a very difficult time keeping up with the need of our existing fridges, so I don't want to then spread us even thinner with more locations. So we do have a, a location host waiting list on our website that people, if they're interested in having a 399 fridge at their location, they can fill out the application. And one day uh, when we are looking to expand, uh, we'll go to that list and, and explore those as options for future sites. And let's just back up for someone who might be hearing this for the first time. As you mentioned, look, your your mission is very simple. You have you place these refrigerators in a community and you keep them stocked. Mm hmm. Yep. So community fridges exist to help our community. So it's just people helping people. The fridges are all outdoors in front of local businesses who partner with us to provide the electricity as well as the space to house our community fridge. And the fridges are open 24 seven, 365. 
Uh, anyone can put food in at any time and anyone can take food out at any time. So it's really just food sharing between, you know, community members. You also told me last year when we had our conversation and you mentioned, you said, Rose, and I'm going to quote you because you said, you know, Uh-oh. I don't like to. Yeah, you know me. <laughs> you said to your your lens, you thought, look, this is what we call a food apartheid. You said because this could be prevented, this need for, for food. And, and I've given so many numbers to our listeners in terms of, you know, reports and surveys. That this pandemic, we're looking at maybe 45 to 50 million people in this nation or households that will be labeled as food insecure. Yes, I stand by that. Um, Now you got me. I'm trying to remember the source, but uh, there was a report done for last year that demonstrated and illustrated for everyone that the number one cause of death in 2020 was starvation, hunger. It wasn't even COVID. It wasn't the flu. It wasn't heart attack. It wasn't even cancer. It was hunger. People in the U.S., more people died in the U.S. of hunger than anything else. And I stand by the fact that I think food apartheid exists because it's very much intentional. It's not an accident that grocery stores aren't in certain neighborhoods and certain places do not have food. And we talked about that. And we also talked about the, the metrics involved with grocery stores and how they pick the locations that they choose to put, put a new store in. What is next for you with Free 99 Fridge? Other than possibly one day getting more fridges in communities, but do you want to see this even grow even more? Well, I think in all honesty, I would love it if community fridges didn't even need to exist. Sure. I love doing this. I think it's great because it's a need, but the only reason we're here is because people in our city are hungry and starving. So if, if community fridges were no longer needed, that would make me very happy. Um, but right now they are needed. And so while they are needed, what I would love to see is for the community to take on community fridges as a part of their natural day-to-day operation. If you're going to drop your kids off at school and you're stopping at the grocery store for your house, pick up an extra gallon of milk to share with your community and put in the community fridge. You know, if you're on your way home from work, just stop by and pick up some trash around the fridges. You know, everyone just taking ownership of the community fridges and allowing us to keep this going for our community members in need while they need it. And, I would love to see that. And where are these fridges located? Uh, so we have five locations. Our first location was in the West End mm-hmm. at Best End Brewing. Uh, we also have, actually that location has two refrigerators. Uh, we have another location at Hodgepodge Coffee House in Ormwood Park. Another location in East Lake at Core Hendricks. Uh, we have another location on Edgewood Avenue at Joystick Game Bar. And our last location is at Refuge Coffee in Clarkston. And all of our locations can be found on our website, free99fridge.com, on the locations page, as well as on our Instagram, at free99fridge. There's a location highlight at the top of our Instagram. And as we wrap up, let's talk about you. What have you, personally for you, what has all this meant? It was just an idea. It blossomed into this now. Your thoughts? Yeah. Wow. Uh, I think probably the biggest thing is a renewed sense of hope in people and my community and my city. I, this project for me demonstrates what's possible. We are independent. We are grassroots. We don't have any sponsorships. We don't have any government backing, but still we just surpassed a year and we're going strong and we will continue. Uh, so for me, it's just uh, very hopeful. I think there are a lot of good people that still exist in our city and in our country. So it's been very good for me. I can co-sign on that. Letitia Springer, 
founder of the Free 99 Fridge. You know, we'll see where we are again, maybe this time next year. Maybe we'll have a whole different conversation. But, Letitia, thank you again so much for what you all are doing to help so many in our community. Folks email me all the time, and, and they really appreciate it. So I know the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. You too. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. What are the makings of a great historical fiction novel? That's a good question. I don't know the answer because I know there are various answers. But I guess to each shall provide their own criteria, right? But what I can tell you is that the great ones take the reader, and these are my words, trust me, on a vivid journey to a place in time far, far away decades, centuries, even thousands of years ago. I wanted to do that because, you know, I have like this actor thing inside of me. And for Atlanta-based author Vanessa Riley, it seems to come pretty easy. Island Queen tells the story of Dorothy Kerwin Thomas, once an enslaved woman who became one of the wealthiest and most powerful landowners in the colonial West Indies. Now, besides these rare reviews, there's some other news, which I'll let Vanessa share. She's appearing at the Atlanta History Center tomorrow. But before that, guess what? She joined me joins me here in studio. Vanessa, welcome. Rose, thank you for having me. It's good to see people. It's good to talk to people and not have to, you know, be across the street and all that. Exactly. Don't worry about my Zoom background. Absolutely. How have <laughs> you been doing in all of this? I, I've i been very, my family's been very lucky. Uh-huh. We, we have uh, had very few people ill. The ones that have recovered quickly. Um, but it's just the world is so changed, yeah. and I, I just pray that the Lord, that the world just gets back to being open and, and moving forward. So everybody out there, get vaccinated. If you haven't get it, just, just saying. <laughs> just saying. You're more than welcome to say that. Let me ask you this. How much do you love history? I love history. I completely adore it. I was that geek, okay, yeah. back in school. Um, I adored it. Um, just I want to be transported, just like you said. Mm-hmm. I want to know why the world works. And I'm a firm believer that if we don't learn lessons, it repeats itself. Now, I want to ask you this, because I mean this with the utmost respect, because I imagine writing has always been a passion for you, right? Yes. How long? What age did you discover that? Twelve. So between 12 and now, you have a doctorate in mechanical engineering and MS in industrial <laughs> engineering and engineering management from Stanford University. And you also have a, a BS and MS in mechanical engineering from Penn State University. That and writing, which do you love more? <laughs> I, I love them both equally. I was As a child at 12, I was gifted in both math and writing. But my mama told me I always need to pay my bills. I, I, yeah, your mother must have done. My, my mama mother. was just, she, she said, look, um, you have to always be able to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. And when you looked at the time frames when I was growing up, there were very few black authors that made it. There's Beverly Jenkins, Brenda Jackson. And then you have to you have to go back uh, to to you know Maya Angelou and mm-hmm. but for my I didn't see anybody didn't see mm-hmm. anybody that looked like me or, you know or or 
that conceivable 20s, 30s. You just didn't see it. And we saw usually typically the same, and they were wonderful black writers that we all, you know, read. I mean, it's the Morrisons. Mm-hmm. It's all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alice Walker, all of these Absolutely. folks. Um, when you think of now, though, where we are in this space, are our are, are young kids, are they seeing enough of the, and I want to put this in a right respectful way, younger authors that we have? Yes. I mean, we all know, I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates has been great, we, we know, but just, mm-hmm. are we you, seeing enough? I don't, in my opinion, there's never enough, mm-hmm. right? But you see more breakthroughs, uh, especially in the YA genre, the young adult genre, mm-hmm. you, you see that. But you haven't seen it as, as, as often as I hope that we're going to be seeing. I think the seeds have really uh, been sown so that you're going to see more uh, general fiction, women's fiction coming uh, out of the black and the Latino and all the peoples of colors. You're going to see that now because I think the seeds have been sown. Well, let's talk about discovering Dorothy Kerwin Thomas. Who is she? She is who a was she, rather. Dorothy Kerwin Thomas is a is a woman who was at her time very famous, but was literally reduced to a chapter in one book and a, a paragraph in another. Hmm. I don't understand how the world could forget this woman. She literally starts out the world in about 1756, born enslaved. She saves money enough to buy her freedom and the freedom of her family. And then she goes on to build businesses across the Caribbean. How was she able to save money? When in enslavement in the West Indies, women could do things called huckstering. Uh, you could literally uh, you make a vase. You could go on what they called market days because the enslaved on Saturday could go to market days, on Sunday could go to church in the West Indies. And it varies ver- very per- uh, on each island. And that's mm-hmm. another thing. Americans usually think of West Indies as just palm trees and beaches. Every single island was colonized by somebody different mm-hmm. or swapped hands, and that impacts the culture of the island. So everything is different. Even the complexion of slave enslavement mm-hmm. is different. And so in Maseret, they had Saturdays off, which is a wild concept to think about. Mm-hmm. You're enslaved, but you have Saturdays yeah. off. But they gave them that time because you could work on your provision ground. So you could go and grow your own food. Or you could literally go to town at the markets, and because colonists are continually coming, mm-hmm. you could sell goods. So blankets and pots and uh, beaded jewelry and things like that. And so she saves enough money mm-hmm. to buy her freedom and of other family members? Yes, her two daughters and her mother. How did you discover her? I literally... I've, all, I've been on the hunt for Dorothy because when I started writing, particularly looking at the Georgian and Regency culture, people didn't th- know black people were a part of this fabric. Uh, and they, they didn't think that we were there or if we were there, we were only enslaved or if we were there, we were only servants. So I've been on the lookout since I read Jane Austen's Sandition, mm-hmm. her very last book, Miss Lamb, a woman from the West Indies, is the wealthiest woman in the book. So you got to think, Is Jane Austen just being a progressive writer, or is she actually recording what she's seeing? I firmly believe she's recording what she's seeing. She is seeing mixed race and black women coming from the West Indies to England for education. And reading about her, you said, well, there's a story there that we for this a character, but this person has a backstory. Yes, and that, but there's also a cultural connection for you as well. Yes, my my father's from Trinidad and Tobago, and he. I think I get my love of history from him. He used to tell me all these stories. And as a kid, I would sit at his knee and he would tell me these things. And I just wish I had really dug in. 
I was I was very young, so I'm giving myself some slack here. <laughs> but I wish I had really dug in because his stories were wonderful and they were so different from what we were seeing on TV and so different. And it talked to the pride of a people. Mm-hmm. And I, I missed that. Without giving away too much here, but how much is actually factual in, in Island Queen about Dorothy Kerwin Thomas? Because there's another, some... There's some romance going on too, right? Well, I always oh, yeah. love, love romance. Oh, yes. they're, they're, 95% of the book is true. Yeah. That's why I'm like, how could the world forget this woman? I, I literally found her. I found a sketch of Prince William, who's the future King William IV. He's in, in a hammock, and he's lovingly caressing this black woman. Now, the artist, Gilroy, who drew the – he's an ist. He's a misogynist. He's a sexist. You just keep filling in the blank. All the is you can come up with, this is this guy. It fits him. Yes. So when he draws, has a chance to draw a woman in his cartoons, he makes us look stupid. He gets a chance to draw a black woman, he's going to go to town. Big nose, bulbous, uh-huh. all kind of crazy. Sure. But this sketch, the woman is drawn beautifully. Hmm. So she's not the joke. She's the tattle. This is what your prince is doing in the West Indies. And by following his life, because men are so much more well-documented in history, mm-hmm. I found him kicking up his boots in Jamaica. I found him just having, you know, tearing up brothels, all kind of things. <laughs> He's a hot mess in the West Indies. But when he gets to the island of Dominica, everything changes. And then his boys tell on him. He's with that mulatto woman again. You are the first person to use the phrase tearing up brothels in the six years I've done this <laughs> program. But, hey, it's the first time for everything. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Atlanta-based author Vanessa Riley, and we're talking about Island Queen, which tells the story of Dorothy Corbin Thomas. I have a question for you because mm-hmm. I know that creatives all have their process, mm-hmm. and I know as authors you all have your own process as well. Take our listeners through when you know that you're in the zone. Because, look, you have a lot of books and a lot of series as well. Mm-hmm. But what's that zone process like for you? For me, the zone is, I, I, I call them signposts. I have reconstructed all the timeline milestones. So everything that's happening. So in this book, you know, you've got everybody yearning for freedom. You've got the American Revolution that's happening. You've got the French. You've got the Haitians. Then you have all these rebellions. And then you have the, the, the wars between the Catholics and Protestants. All this is going on in the West Indies. So I've lined all this out. And then I have these signposts specific to Dorothy, mm-hmm. where she bore her children, where she leased buildings, uh, when she traveled from the, the islands going to London and Scotland, when she put her kids into school uh, uh, across the seas. Once you have that fabric of time, then you could able to weave the story. Are there any descendants of Dorothy Carolyn Thomas that we know of? Uh, I was actually, uh, I went to a costume party at a conference, and my picture was taken, and I got DM'd uh, in Facebook. This was back in 2018. I hadn't even been contracted to write the book. And he's like, that's my great, 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 great grandma. <laughs> His name is Chris Rathbone. He's, he's in Japan uh, right now. Her descendants are all over the world. Uh, she has a legacy of people. And so I go back to my premise, why was this coordinated, mm-hmm. well-organized, black woman who attained a fortune that no one could ever see coming, why was she erased? How long did she live? She lived 90 years. The average black person during that time frame lived 30. So she literally lives three lifetimes, and she does the mostest with that life. I I understand. And her story deserves to be told. So let's talk about taking 
Island Queen from the pages to film production. Now, I know there's a connection here with the folks from Bridgerton. We all watched that, a very successful series for Netflix. What can you share? I know some things you can't share, but what can you share? Well, I can share uh, that the option was bought when during the manuscript phase. Already? Yes. Uh, they, they How looked, unusual is that? It's, I think, highly unusual, but they heard the story of this woman's life. Well, and Netflix be on it, right? <laughs> <laughs> we, the network hasn't been chosen yet. Okay. However. But it's the team. It's the team, of, right? So you have Longboat Productions with Julianne Robinson, the uh, uh, Emmy-nominated director from Bridgerton. You've got okay. Victoria Fee, who did Victoria out of the UK, and, and a number of different productions. And then my narrator for uh, the audiobook, which if... It's if you haven't heard Adjo Endo from Doctor Who mm -hmm. or Lady Dansbury from uh, Bridgerton. Yes. You're missing a treat. Absolutely. Get Island Queen's audio. It is amazing. But she fell in love with the book. She's amazing. And she's so humble. We WhatsApp together. It's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me ask you this. Do you have concerns about the production remaining true to the storyline of this novel? None whatsoever. Okay. When Victoria and Julianne first approached my agent and approached me, um, they understand that this is an important black woman's story that has to be told. Mm -hmm. So every possible way from screenwriters to uh, the runners to that writing room is mm -hmm. going to be integrated. This is a diverse story. There are mm -hmm. all types and characters of people in this book it's got to be brought to forefront but the star of this this narrative is dorothy Kerwin thomas it's her story that has to be told and has we have to be faithful to it i know there was excitement when you first heard this news the first for you what, what went through your mind i'm amazed i'm i've i've been amazed on this journey mm -hmm. um i'm amazed at every review that comes across uh the new york times raved on this book yeah. People, I'm getting emails from people who are so touched. People who are seeing their Caribbean roots are, are excited. I'm seeing people who sometimes avoid enslavement stories because of the pain. They're taking a chance, and, and they're reading it, and it's touching them. And we've had those conversations. I have conversation with friends. You can see it on social media. And some folks say, I'm tired of this slave narrative. I'm tired of this. And here is a story where it... it it's different. It's it's, it's and it's tr it's true. Mm -hmm. How many more Dorothy Dorothy Kerwin Thompsons out there that we don't even know about, Vanessa? I, I think there are hundreds, hundreds of women. Uh, Dorothy had friends, the Entertainment Society, the Chul Weed. So these are names. That's why I love this journey. She had a crew. History. She had a she waiting had a text. She had a waiting text. Hail crew. She had a crew. <laughs> she had a crew. And you know the book we we tackle colorism because she, she was a, a a dark skinned beautiful woman, beautiful beautiful woman. But she faced colorism. She faced so many different things, and she met the moment. Dorothy was not a perfect person by any stretch of the imagination. But when history called for her to be her best self, she was. And she was able to save women like her generational wealth for years to come. Um, I'm so excited to be able to tell her story. I'm going to put you on the spot. I probably shouldn't do this. But you, you can say, Rose, I'm not going to answer. But if you had your choice of an actor to play Dorothy. <laughs> well, 
there, if there it could be an unknown. It, could, it has to be. there. Well, I don't have a name for you, but mm-hmm. I will tell you the characteristics because there's three Dorothys in my head. Oh. There's very young Dorothy where she's grappling with her situation of understanding enslavement and, and navigating the world. Then there is Dolly, right, mm-hmm. where she is. She's, she's feeling her oats. Is that I, like the... 30s, 40s, 50s? She, for or? her, her stretched. So <laughs> I, would say, I would say 20s on up, right? Uh, because there's, that's where you get some of her significant love affairs. Um, that's got to be a breakout uh, actress. I'm thinking, is it, what's her name? Is it a, a Nika Noni Rose? Ooh. Can you do a career? Can she do a career? Can be an accent? Well, she's an actor. She's a great actor. That's so true. She's a, yeah. Very true. But of course, no. her age is going, Rose, shut up. You don't know, <laughs> you know her schedule. <laughs> yeah. But no, but uh, I would, I would, I would. Or Christine hear. Adams, who, Ooh. yeah, from Black Light. Boy, I tell, I'm getting a lot of folks in trouble. Yes. <laughs> Rose Scott said you should cast this person. Hey. But what this means, though, is there's so many great actors out there. Mm-hmm. Some we know, some mm-hmm. we don't know. So how excited are you for this? I am, so, I'm, I am so excited. This woman should never have been erased from history. And was she erased or we just didn't know? I think she was erased. So erased. I was okay. erased. She was very well known. They, I've seen so many entries of, hey, uh, Doll Thomas is in Glasgow, uh, which is Scott, Glasgow, Scotland, with her 18 grandkids. Mm-hmm. Okay? And this is circa 1810. Okay, yeah. she is traveling all the way from below the equator all the way up to Scotland with her grandkids because she wants her family to see the world that she's opened up by building her fortune. Dorothy spent most of her time in the West Indies. Did she ever in do much traveling? She traveled a lot. Um, she traveled to Scotland, to Ireland, and to London, uh, attending balls, renting houses. She's amazing. That's why I'm like, this was systematic. Yeah. Her will is archived in the UK. So at that moment in time, they knew she was important. So to be taken from our history books and to be reduced to a paragraph and a simple chapter is a travesty. Until now. Until now. Vanessa Riley, the book is called Island Queen. It tells the story of Dorothy Kerwin Thomas. Folks emailing me talking about, can they get a book? Go buy the book, y'all. Or, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll buy some books and get my way because I know it can be tough for some people. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. You're going to be at the Atlanta History Center tomorrow. Yes, tomorrow I'm going to be speaking about the book and how important it is for us to tell our stories. You are the connector between the past, the present, and the future. And what you do is going to enable futures to tell the story of our of our di- uh, diaspora. Well said. Vanessa, thank you so much for coming and taking time. I really appreciate it. Rose, thank you for having me. Good conversation. Uh, this is just wonderful. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us. 
WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.